This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, new scholarship explores the lives of the first Africans to fall under European rule half a millennium ago, and the birth of hip-hop in New York City. A Black scholar claims that urban destruction under neoliberal capitalism laid the groundwork for the new musical genre. But first, the U.S. assassination of a leading Iranian general threatens to bring the world once again to the brink of war. We spoke with Dr. Anthony Montero, the Philadelphia-based Du Boisian scholar. Let me say first of all that this is, under international law, a crime. It's a war crime. Even during belligerencies and wars, hot wars between nations, leaders, civilian leaders, and those not on the battlefield are not targeted. So this is a brazen violation of international law. On the other side, it politically will play to the advantage of Iran, which has been preparing for some time for acts like this and others by the United States. And they are, in a sense, more prepared for war with the United States. And I think the United States is prepared for war with them. You know, the other thing, you take Qasim Suleiman, the man who was murdered. He is a top figure in the Iranian state. And therefore, his assassination is an attack upon the state. But at the same time, you know, the Iranian form of Shia Islam venerates martyrdom. And Qasim Suleiman, who had fought in the Iran-Iraq war and is a founder of the Quds group within the uh, Revolutionary Guard section of the Iranian military, he's kind of a founder of that. And it comes out of his experience in the uh, war, the mid-'80s war with Iraq. So this is a very important figure in Iran. Now, what does this mean at the end of the day in a geostrategic sense? Well, first of all, it brings uh, Russia, China, and Iran closer together. The whole uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization will be uh, solidified. Other nations of the global south will rally around Iran because they recognize that this could also happen to any nation with this kind of brazen Wild West uh, behavior. But in terms of the United States, and this I think is very important, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that this effectively ends Donald Trump's presidency. How so? Uh, Well, because he intended to run, and he had been campaigning more or less on a peace and prosperity platform. Unemployment down, the stock market up, wages going up, and so on, and withdrawing 
from Afghanistan and Syria and not being involved or getting involved in any of these regime change wars. That has been totally reversed. The other side of this is any war, a prolonged war, an actual war, not an Iraq or Afghanistan type of war, but where two militaries clash and at the same time use cyber warfare, use asymmetric warfare and that type of thing, as well as conventional warfare with modern missiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A prolonged war will bring on what many economists are already talking about, a serious recession driven by not only a bloated stock market, but oil prices that could go through the roof, depending upon, for example, what happens in the Straits of Hormuz, through which about 70% of all of the Persian Gulf oil passes is a destabilizing act on a world stage, but it intensifies the political crisis, the crisis of governance and of rule, because I'm convinced that unlike Iraq or unlike Afghanistan or even Vietnam at the beginning, this will be opposed by the majority of American people out the gate. And those who are in the camp of Trump will see it as a great betrayal. So, you know, like they say, tighten your seatbelts. We're in for a rocky next few months of this election campaign. Well, before we further explore the big geostrategic implications of this and the domestic U.S. implications, we need to mention that Iraq is the country whose sovereignty was violated, that it was an Iraqi international airport where Mm -hmm. this assassination occurred, and that the United States has 5,000 troops in Iraq. And this totally makes untenable the U.S. position in Iraq, where there is no significant social, political, or economic party that is a viable partner with the U.S., certainly after this assault. And that would mean if the U.S. is driven out of Iraq, which seems certain and Uh soon, then it can't support its activities in Syria and prop up its jihadists. And that Uh means an exit from that country as well. And that, of course, gives big weight to the geopolitical story that you've been talking about. Yes. And and you're right about that. And As goes Iraq, in a lot of ways, so goes Syria. And one of the things the big boogeymen that the U.S. propagandists and strategists keep bringing up is Russia's return as a major player in the Middle East. Well, that's true, and that's going to happen. But I would add also China. So we will see, I think, a radical and profound shift away from the United States And of course, you know, Iran sits right in between Iraq on the West and Afghanistan on the East. And so it therefore has the potential to shape a good part of Middle Eastern politics. You know, to be very honest with you, Glenn, it is one of the stupidest moves you can imagine. Even American politicians are scratching their heads trying to figure out 
why now? And now that it's been done, what do we do as the Iranians carry out asymmetric and other forms of warfare against U.S. so-called interests in that part of the world? I think it is a lose-lose for the United States. I think it also throws American presidential politics and party politics into a kind of a more chaotic uh, situation. Because now, what the Democrats were reluctant to do, the issue of peace is on the table in a big way. Yes, and we haven't even talked about raising U.S. provocations and interferences with China in Hong Kong, which is internationally recognized, recognized even by the former colonial power in Hong Kong, Britain, that Hong Kong is Chinese. And yet the U.S., in covert and not-so-covert ways, is forcing a confrontation on what is Chinese soil. That's right. That's right. It's yes. And, you know, in a certain sense, the crisis of American empire is a total crisis. It is a crisis that is forcing, at least among some of the participants in the ruling class of this country, to recognize you got to retreat. You know, that if you think you can militarily rule the world, that's a mistake. Because while you're trying to do that, China and other nations are advancing technologically and economically and will inevitably surpass the U.S. and the West. So that, that's one side of it. But then when we talk about a complete crisis of this nature, we're also talking about the domestic crisis. And, you know, I've been making this point over the years, as you, as you know, that the United States is becoming ungovernable. The major institutions, from the media to academia, to the Congress, to politicians generally, to the presidency, all face crises of legitimacy. You know, the situation has gotten so bad that even now the Atlantic magazine has caught up to where we were uh, four years ago. The nation is in something that is a virtual civil war. And it's not just the elites, the ruling class fighting, but it is a profound crisis between the people and the rulers of the country. You know, it's one of those, those moments where the rulers cannot rule in the old way and the people are not prepared to be ruled in the old way. So it is total, it is global, it is international, but it is also domestic. And this assassination of one of the key players in the Iranian state only deepens the crisis of American empire and American imperialism at home and abroad. And yet the response of dominant sections of the ruling class to this crisis of legitimacy that we've been describing for some time is to further delegitimize U.S. institutions. That's yeah. what Russiagate has successfully done. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine gate, yes, and impeachment. I mean, you just are sometimes lost for words to accurately explain and describe what this moment is. You know, we can make historic analogies. I mean, there has not been a political crisis of this magnitude since the 1860s and the beginning of the Civil War. 
is it's a question of whether or not or how long the U.S. state in its current form will continue to exist. And I guess another way of putting it, if the ruling class cannot rule, then who will? And I think that's the future question or maybe the immediate question. Who will rule? Who will govern? Now, in terms of the Democratic Party, you know, positive development, not without conditions, I should say, is the rise of Bernie Sanders, as, as many of them are saying, who looks like he could get the nomination. Very important. But now he has to answer the question, which he has not or has been reluctant to discuss, what is his position on war and peace? What is his position on detente with Russia, detente with Iraq, detente with Iran, and on and on and on? What is his position on the coups in South America, the overthrow of Evo Morales and others before him? Yes, of course, you can't be a socialist and an imperialist, too. But the very fact that so many Americans, especially the youth, are embracing the term socialism uh, has a lot to do with this rapid delegitimacy yes. of U.S. institutions, of U.S. state propaganda, and the very questions about what it means to be an American, and Americans are uncomfortable with mm -hmm. imperialism. And with capitalism. And I don't know how far Bernie is prepared to go with this socialist identity, but no matter how far he goes, as you said, the youth and the people who are the subjects of, of this crisis, or the objects of it, I would say, they're going to take it as far as they need to take it. And of course, that's, that's why people like yourself, what you do and what I try to do is to emphasize the centrality of the ideological struggle. You don't have to tell people they're doing bad. What people want to know is what is your solution to my doing bad? And I think larger and larger numbers of people are comfortable with socialism. And let me put this beside it and aspire towards peace and non-intervention and anti-war and the candidate that can speak to both peace and changing or reforming, radical reform of, of U.S. capitalism, redistribution of wealth, that can speak to those two in a cogent way, I think that candidate has the best possibility of being the next president, which would mean that we would have the most left presidency since the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. Yes, a left presidency with a corporate Congress still intact, and therefore deep, deep and very public divisions for all the world to see. That's right. And thus, the question of who can govern, who can govern, and thus the constitutional question once again, in a different way than it's being discussed today, the constitutional question of where does power reside in the country, the Congress or the presidency? And can the presidency boldly assert an agenda and a vision that will capture the masses in such a way to force, if not nullify, the reactionaries in the Congress?
in the coming months, the more immediate prospect is that the ruling order and its corporate media will do everything possible to destabilize this threat from the left of the Democratic Party in the form of Bernie Sanders, and do so in ways almost as blatant as the attack on Iraq's airport and the assassination of the Iranian commander. That's very interesting the way you put it, to compare the two acts. You know, since we're talking historical analogies, you know, we can't forget the 1960s and the wave of the of assassinations of top national leaders from Kennedy to King to Malcolm to Robert Kennedy. Many people call that the beginning of a coup d'etat where the military, in effect, began to take over the state and the government. I think we have to think about such things as this. Bernie, in a, in a way, way beyond what he intends, I think, represents a threat to the existing order. At the same time, you have forces like Tulsi Gabbard, who I think part has to be a part of a, a coalition of forces that are not just about winning the presidency, but about building a permanent movement for justice and peace and social change. Well, certainly Bernie's program represents an existential threat to the neoliberal order. Oh, yes. And neoliberalism is nothing but a more complex word than people like to use for a race to the bottom. People understand what a race to the bottom. They've been in it for the last 30 years here in the United States. And Bernie's program would upset that neoliberal order. Wreck it. I don't see how that is acceptable to those who have implemented it. Yeah, I mean, have implemented and benefit from it. I mean, starting with the big banks in Chicago and New York and San Francisco and in other places. We have to always remember, like Hilferding and, and Lenin asserted, that uh, finance capital is effectively the rule of the banks. And of course, it's so interesting that Bloomberg is going to buy the election, a living embodiment of finance and finance capital in a time when people are fed up with banks and pharmaceutical companies and these Facebooks and Googles and and all of that and want them broken up, want the banks broken up and nationalized, I'm certain. All of that, that the people are sick of, the rot, the moribundness, the stagnation of the current system Bloomberg and Biden and Buttigieg represent. So, yeah, I think I think we're in a, a great moment. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Yes, Bloomberg's presence in the race only highlights the contradictions and gives an oligarch face to it. Yeah. it I mean, it's not a bad thing because he does make that whole camp so obvious. But I think, you know, Glenn, it's not like in 2001 and 2003 when the United States went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq and then Libya and then Syria. In a certain way, it was hard to see light at the end of the tunnel. But this time around, we see this assassination and attack upon the state of Iran as a desperate move of a stagnant 
ruling class who can't explain a world that they are not dominant in and therefore think like making America great again, bringing back the Cold War again, and bullying humanity and all the nations of the world. Well, that doesn't work now. And for many in the ruling class, like let us say, for example, a John Bolton and his people like him, they cannot understand or think in a world like this. So they strike out like small children who can't get their way. But this time around, adults will discipline them, will punish them. And that's what the United States, the military of the United States, and most of the ruling class are in for. And I, I always get back to this, Glenn, the American people are not going to accept these wars, not going to accept it like they did in the early part of the 21st century. The U.S. certainly does not have the option to come once again into Iraq with masses of troops. In fact, it's much more likely that the troops they have will soon be expelled. That's right. That's right. No, and that's the point. And a part of that, and I, I keep saying this, and it's not so obvious, but I think it is a fact that the majority of American people, and they're all not the same in how they arrive at this conclusion, are fed up with war. They want an end to it. They're fed up with the cost of war, just like they're fed up with the cost of their drugs, the cost of hospital care. And they are basically saying that they want a different world. That was Du Boisian scholar, Dr. Anthony Montero, speaking from Philadelphia. The roots of hip-hop music and culture have long been debated. Dr. Lisa Calvente teaches intercultural communications at DePaul University. She wrote a recent article for the political journal Souls, in which she draws a straight line between neoliberal capitalism and the birth of hip-hop in New York City. For me, hip-hop is really the excess, right? The unintended product of neoliberalism. So the interesting thing, or at least for me, in terms of power, is that even though power relationships can be sustained, maintained, and reinforced, what actually does happen over and over again is that people will always resist. And here, hip-hop is that resistance from neoliberalism. And it just happens to be young people that resist or actually articulate the resistances, express the resistances from their neighborhoods. But you also seem to be saying that hip-hop came to be the symbol of what the powers that be said was the cause of urban decay, black crime, Absolutely. and sociopathology. Absolutely. So the thing about a lot of work on hip-hop, while I understand that the scholars are talking about representation. Sometimes that doesn't actually come across. And what I'm trying to do is separate the two 
points of hip-hop. So hip-hop culture, as it is, as it's played out, and then the representations of hip-hop. So you have two things working at once. You have the culture that is contradictory, resistant, and then you have the representation of hip-hop that helps to reinforce all of these changes. So two things are working at the same time. Well, if hip-hop was used as a scapegoat for the crimes of the rulers, why hip-hop? There have always been black lifestyles and cultural manifestations that white people have labeled as indicative of an antisocial and pathological culture. We had Superfly in the early 70s and other such gangster types all throughout our history. Yeah, so hip-hop is an interesting piece of neoliberalism, right? So what I'm trying to do is really contextualize that time period. And you can't contextualize that time period within that space, New York, without looking at hip-hop culture and how hip-hop ends up being a huge part of popular culture and representation, right? So there are a lot of things that are going on in the 80s and 90s, and even the 70s, which is what really formed neoliberalism as we know it, especially in New York City. And what happens with hip-hop is that, one, it is resistance from the very beginning. So it calls out policing, it calls out specifically like the particular things that are connected to neoliberalism. So the shutting down of public resources, the deaths, the exposure to deaths that actually occurs after the crises. And as I say in the article, these deaths are connected to these neoliberal changes. But the representation of the danger of blackness, if you will, masks what neoliberalism does in terms of the privatization of everything, blaming the individual for not being able to afford health care, for example, or putting themselves in a predicament to need health care. These are all things that are tied to public funding or the shutting down of public funding. So hip-hop is really connected to neoliberalism. And then what you do see is an ongoing representation of urban blackness as a threat. And when I say blackness, I'm really talking about not identity as in terms of being black, although that most certainly fits under that umbrella. I'm really talking about how racism and those methods of racism and white supremacy are really linked to non-whiteness. So you can talk about blackness and really talk about brown bodies as well. So it's not just those who are identified as black per se in terms of the historical understanding but also the Black diaspora understanding of what it means to be under the umbrella of Blackness. But neoliberalism is a phenomenon of global capitalism across the whole nation and the world. Are you saying that that the 1975 so-called fiscal crisis is what makes 
New York uniquely suitable to birth hip-hop? Yes, I am saying that. And even though neoliberalism affects the world and capitalism as well, right, what I'm doing is really kind of fitting hip-hop and New York City's crisis within a larger scale historical moment. And my argument is really that all of this neoliberalism, which I think is the excess of capitalism, stems from colonization and enslavement. It stems from the marking of, of the entire world for capitalism and justified through racism. So justified through these supposed racial differences. What about mass incarceration, which has left indelible marks on the hip-hop culture? That's a phenomenon that is also nationwide and is generally dated to about 1970. Yeah, so you have a huge shift in mass incarceration, or what some scholars call hyper-incarceration, because of neoliberalism, because of Reaganomics, and especially occurring in the modern space. So with hip-hop, you also have, specifically in New York City, hyper-policing, hyper-incarceration that occurs through laws from all the way from the 1970s and then Mayor Giuliani, before that Mayor Dinkins under the guise of beautifying the city, relieving the city of being this terrible, rotten space. What that actually means, though, is taking out, removing particular bodies from the city and basically incarcerating them. And they happen to be black and brown young people. And hip-hop, very early on, becomes that scapegoat. So you have, of course, the now famous Central Park Five case, which links hip-hop to this unexplained violence from young black and brown kids. And what we're really talking about is children. So children produce hip-hop. Children are out in the streets. Children are actually doing these things. But with hip-hop, the representations of hip-hop, really, you have continued redefining of children as dangerous, unreformable threats. And that representation is wrapped up and connected to hip-hop culture, hip-hop representation, not the culture itself. And the interesting thing here is that link is there. So we can see young people, young people who are resisting particular oppressive strategies every single day, right? And creating those resistances, creating those communities. We, we see them through these representations as threats, as unredeemable, and as opposed to looking at what's really happening, the draining of monies from our public school system, from public services, and replacing that with private corporations, really building a gap between the poor and the underclass and middle class, upper middle class, etc. 
But why was New York the birthplace of hip-hop? We have Chicago, which has the second largest black population in the country and a huge Latino population and is maybe the quintessentially anti-black city with horrific police force and also a city in which the black population has been squeezed out at a rate Mm -hmm. even higher than in New York City. Yes. So I'm talking about the birth of hip-hop. I'm sure someone else can talk about how house music represented the same kinds of resistance here in Chicago. But the reason why I focused on hip-hop and New York City is that New York City actually becomes, and I argue this in the article, the model of neoliberalism, of how neoliberalism can work, what kinds of crises are represented to allow corporations and policymakers on the local level to really make particular changes, changes that, you know, you see in terms of gentrification, in terms of really displacing the poor. And the poor in certain spaces, especially in New York City at the time, meant black and brown people. And now, 30 or so years after the inception, lots of people in the hip-hop business are rich. Some are billionaires. And the rulers are making the most of that as well. Yeah. One of the things about hip-hop, so who are we talking about? Jay-Z, even Cardi B at this point, New York hip-hop artists. And yes, a lot of them have made it. That's part of the representation of hip-hop. So one of the things that hip-hop does for neoliberalism, for our current state, is it keeps that understanding of black and brown bodies, urban bodies in particular, as pathological. It keeps that representation alive. And at the same time, it also promotes the notion of the American dream, neoliberalism, this idea that you can pick yourself up from your bootstraps. It is possible. That's what hip-hop represents. So, for example, Jay-Z represents this person who has created his own success story. Someone who was impoverished, used to sell drugs, turns his life around with music, ends up being on the Forbes list for one of, I think he is the highest grossing hip-hop artist at this point. I'm not sure. But you have those representations that help you accept that this is the way the world is. This is the way it is in the United States. If you work hard enough, you can make it. You can be successful. And it helps to mask everything that really prevents the majority of people, especially black and brown people, from being successful. Urban working class, black and brown people. 
So on the one hand, we have hip-hop being used as an excuse for state repression and further gentrification and the driving of blacks out of the cities. And on the other, we have the few success stories of hip-hop being used as justification for laissez-faire capitalism and rule of the billionaires. We've got some hip-hop billionaires, too. Yes, absolutely. And those kinds of things justify blaming individuals, blaming these young people who are hyper-policed. And what we do understand is that in terms of crime, people commit crime regardless, regardless if they are black, if they are white. I mean, how many people go over the speed limit, for example, every single day? That's a crime. You're breaking the law. But what we also understand is that there are certain spaces that are heavily policed. So it's not that crime isn't committed in white bourgeois, upper-middle-class spaces, crimes are committed. They're just not policed in the same ways. So even if there is a precinct, they might turn away, turn a blind eye to someone speeding, going past a red light or whatever. But what we understand is that in New York City, in New Jersey, you can get pulled over and get ticketed and then also be arrested, and be killed if you are black or brown. This is not a hypothetical. That actually happens. You note that people commit crimes and will continue to commit crimes, but the rulers will continue to use whatever black lifestyle or dress style or cultural style is adopted to use that Mm -hmm. as the signal lifestyle of criminality. They've done that with every lifestyle of black folks and said that is what criminality looks like. And if another lifestyle emerges and is black, they'll use that one as the image of criminality. Absolutely. So it's not that hip hop is that different than these other representations. As a matter of fact, Hip-hop is a point of similarity within a long historical trajectory of colonization and enslavement. It's not a coincidence that these kinds of representations begin to popularize in the history of the United States during or after emancipation. So that's not a coincidence. These representations occur during the end of slavery and then continue during decolonization. This is to create an understanding, you know, those peoples of the Black diaspora are actually inherently violent, inherently oppositional to what it means to be a citizen of a nation state and also a human citizen of the world. It makes those people that are of the Black diaspora or under the umbrella of Blackness as public enemy number one, and this is worldwide. 
So while I'm talking about New York City, I'm really making an argument about the state of the world. That was Dr. Lisa Calvente speaking from DePaul University in Chicago. Before Christopher Columbus ever set sail for the New World, the Portuguese had been making raids on West Africa and taking black prisoners as slaves. Nick Jones is a professor of Spanish at Bucknell University. He's written a book about the lives of those African captives of the Portuguese and Spanish empires. It's titled, Staging Habla de Negros, Radical Performances of the African Diaspora in Early Modern Spain. Habla de Negros, obviously a Spanish word, phrase, that was used during the Renaissance, so dating as early as mid-1400s, well into the mid-1700s. And so in Spain, specifically during this period, Habla de Negros, pretty much described and referred to the mark speech or the Africanized ways in which Sub-Saharan Africans, both enslaved and freed, spoke Castilian Spanish during the period. And then also quickly with the term habla de negros, it also appeared and manifested in Portugal as well. So in Portuguese, there was a similar term used such as fala de preto, which basically meant the same thing, referred to the same ways in which, again, Sub-Saharan Africans spoke Portuguese. So basically, habla de negros means black talk, but I take it that, it, much, sig- yeah. that it signifies more than just the way black folks spoke Portuguese or Spanish, but the way the Spanish and Portuguese perceived these West Africans whom they had begun enslaving. Exactly. I mean, it was really interesting because clearly in the scholarship from both linguists, sociolinguists, literary scholars, historians alike, the running interpretation, the running critique is that these white appropriations, white representations of this habla de negro, so this Africanized Spanish, was purely, solely mockery, racist buffoonery, so on and so forth. And in my book, I acknowledge that, yes, that type of, you know, very anti-Black, racist, problematic uh, representations were happening. But again, in the book, I push back against that interpretation and I make the case that that type of reading isn't enough. It isn't sufficient for us to just reduce these white appropriations of Africanized Spanish to mockery, these hackneyed stereotypes. And so what we find, not only in literary works, such as in drama or poetry, but also in the archives, in historical documents, archival documents, we find these really fascinating ways in which, again, the sub-Saharan Africans from West Africa, as well as from Central Africa as well, through their Africanized Spanish, they're speaking back to their masters, they're critiquing them. I have a chapter on signifying where I analyze a poem that's in dialogue, between these two Black Africans, and I say that in these representations, you have these representations of habla de negros, where Black people are signifying, and we can see very clearly African diasporic 
cultural survivals and retention manifest in these, you know, so-called fake, fictional literary works. And what's really interesting is that when we work in the archive, there I have found in my case these really uncanny, amazing, shocking, mind-blowing instances where these Africanized speech patterns and events match up with diasporic cultural retention practices in archival documents and vice versa. So I see that, you know, there's this fluidity between this so-called fictitious literary representation of linguistic Blackness that manifests in the so-called real historical narrative. Now, we know that the Portuguese in particular were launching slave raids in an organized fashion two generations before Columbus. In fact, I've read that in the late part of the 1400s, about 30% of the southern Portuguese population were Africans imported, enslaved, to work the fields there. So the Portuguese in particular, and later the Spanish, had plenty of occasion to linguistically interact with Africans. Sure, no, absolutely. And I think that in just looking at the demographics of all this in numbers, which I also make this case, which is really important, because when we just look at numbers at the height of the Renaissance, so when I say that I'm, you know, dating this, especially in Castile, as it was called for Spain during the reign of Philip II, mid-1500s to 1598, both Seville and Lisbon, their Black population were as high as 11%. And for me, that number is really important because it shows that you have these Black characters who populate these texts, and these white authors, if you will, are representing, depicting, wrestling with, through this habla de negros, different cultural practices, food preferences, food culture, material culture. So again, for me, in this project, my interpretation and approach of the racialization of sub-Saharan Africans in this early modern period really relies on material culture and the materiality of the ways in which this Africanized Spanish operated, circulated in these literary and historical documents, as well as for the white authors creating these texts, how they also wrestled with and made sense of constructing and theorizing. Yes, this is a very interesting period because this Uh is the seminal era in which white slave owners are justifying that practice in cultural and other terms and dealing with the enslaved population and in which the enslaved population is dealing with this dominant language, Portuguese and Spanish, and uh, trying to express their humanity and how it's interpreted by the slave owner who gets to write all this down. No, precisely, precisely. Because for some scholars and students as well, when teaching these materials in the classroom, a lot of folks are curious to see, well, did Black people write as well during the period? And specifically with Habla de Negros, that's a complicated answer because in some senses, you had and there were Blacks who 
again, under apprenticeship and obviously who were slaves because slavery and the process of enslaving, again, Sub-Saharan Africans in Iberia wasn't the same as it was in the Americas. You, you know, you didn't have fields and plantations. You didn't have this agricultural type of economy and such that we find, again, in the American South, the Caribbean, Brazil, so in Mexico as well. And so what's interesting is that in Iberia, in wealthy elite households and even in the clergy and churches and convents where you had nuns, you had enslaved Blacks who were taught to read, taught to write. And you have in these in different instances where, again, these enslaved Blacks who, again, through apprenticeship and through training and through learning how to write as scribes and so on and so forth, it's understood that they wrote poems and wrote things down on parchment. And it's not certain whether or not they were writing or composing things in habla de negros, but it is understood that you had, again, through apprenticeship and training, these enslaved Blacks who wrote things down. And then later on, you have this figure by the name of Juan Latino, who is understood to be known to be the first Black man who wrote epic poetry and so on and so forth. So in the presence of a large proportion of literate Black folks, did that have an effect on Spanish and Portuguese perceptions of Blacks? Or did the mainstream Spanish society persist in saying that Blacks were incapable of what the Spanish would call high culture? I would say there are some who would disagree, but I would think that it's a very complex one in the sense that we have to think about the question of sovereignty. Because again, in Iberia, where you had these autonomous kingdoms and sovereign states, and then once you have, for example, as you rightfully pointed out with the Portuguese starting you know, the raids and the trading across the west coast of Africa, there are moments where the Portuguese and then later the Spanish under the crown of the Catholic monarchs and Isabel as well, African sovereignty is respected. And in the courts and in elite culture, both the Portuguese and the Castilian and Aragonese crowns recognize that. And I think that a lot of times the nuance is lost because for many North American readers, and I would say Spanish speakers as well, on this side of the Americas, there's quickness to assume that the power relations between sub-Saharan Africans and white Iberians was always one of inequality. And that's not always true. Just for as many instances where we see clear negrophobic, anti-Black, white supremacist instances. On the flip side, there are also many instances that contradict those moments. So again, to answer your question, just as you have those moments where clearly both elite and non-elite white Iberian culture saw Blacks as stupid and dumb, fools, buffoons, so on and so forth, there were a handful of many other instances where that wasn't the case, where you have texts highlighting and celebrating and pointing out Black beauty, agency, intellect, 
And I think, again, going back to thinking about sub-Saharan African sovereignty, where, again, for the Portuguese, and especially when we look at examples of the Kingdom of Congo, which is understood to be known as this sovereign place, where, and again, with the Africanized Portuguese, there are diplomatic correspondences where the kings of the Congo and their princes are writing back to the Portuguese crown, sending letters and dignitaries and emissaries and ambassadors are traveling back and forth. The reception and understanding that, again, white Iberian elite culture treated and understood sub-Saharan African literacy was very complex, very complex. Yes, and this pre-Columbian intercourse Mm -hmm. between especially Portuguese, but also Spanish rulers, also seems to have influenced the way that they explored the New World. We know that many of the Spanish explorers had with them not just one or two, but Mm -hmm. a significant number of Black folks who operated on those incursions, more or less, it appears, as equals. No, absolutely. No, for sure. I mean, when you think about the so-called conquest of Mexico and, you know, when we look at the instance of Hernán Cortés and Juan Garrido, and then so absolutely in the different um, codexes, there are pictorial images and depictions of visibly and physically dark-skinned sub-Saharan African men, soldiers, conquistadors, if you wish to call them that, fighting alongside, marching alongside Spanish troops and fleet and Cortes in this case, even when we think about Estebanico as well in the Southwest and Cabeza de Vaca's um, Naufragios and Shipwrecks, autobiography, so to speak, eyewitness narrative account. So yeah, there are a handful of signature moments where we have, again, these Black men fighting alongside. And even with that, with, you know, new research that I'm doing, it's also, you know, really important to realize that with Black women also had a huge, huge central aspect and part on expressing their agency, independence on both sides of the Atlantic. And so as, as an example, as a quick example that comes to mind in very early colonial Havana, early colonial Cuba, You have this sector of society of black women called Morenas Orras, or these free black women or free African-descended women who, to make a long story short, in early colonial Cuba, and so for dates, the 1540s, 50s, 60s, early 1600s, where you have these groups of free African and African-descended women, again, who own taverns, who own bars, and with the monies that they collected, they would free other blacks. They would have these really fascinating and complicated intermediary roles and relationships with white sailors and white mariners. You had some of these women who married other black men and you had others who married white sailors and soldiers and created new communities. And that just, again, creates an entirely different understanding and narrative about colonial society in the Spanish-speaking world. And also on in Iberia, you also had the same group category of three Black women who were engaged in similar activities, you know, working in taverns, owning inns, working at the docks, in different paintings. You have these beautiful representations of them with their head wraps and head scarves. And again, this really fascinating and rich 
material culture with their wardrobe and their dress, which is distinctly Sub-Saharan African, but also you see and have these influences of Renaissance European Iberian culture and their market women. So yeah, it's a lot of really cool, fascinating material, you know, has yet to be worked through and explored. And most definitely in my second book, I'm getting into a lot of those representations. Yeah, it's a lot out there. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.